last couple of weeks, we've looked at the book of Ephesians in various texts, and we've talked about walking in wisdom. We've talked about walking in the light. The text we looked at was, uh, you are now light in the Lord, walk as children of light. But what about times when you walk in darkness, when it seems that there is no light, when it seems like the clouds of heaven have come in and all the light and the warmth of God's blessing seems to be cut off. With that contrast, we look this morning in Isaiah chapter 50 verse 10. Where Isaiah poses this question. Who is among you that feareth the Lord, that obeyeth the voice of his servant, that walketh in darkness, and hath no light. So my title this morning is Trusting God in the Darkness. What is this darkness? Well, since Isaiah is speaking to people that fear God and that obey the voice of his servant and that are to trust in the name of the Lord and stay upon their God, this is not the darkness of unbelief, which we find so much in the New Testament. It's not the works of darkness. It's not the power of darkness. It's not the love of darkness. It's not the sin of darkness. In fact, in this text, there's no apparent sin that you could point to and say, this is why I'm in the darkness. The darkness here is a metaphor used to express discouragement. In fact, there are many words that begin with the letter D that we could assign to this text. Disheartened, dispirited, despondent, despairing, discouraged, disappointed, downcast. Now, being in this condition doesn't necessarily mean that outward circumstances are conspiring against you, where where things are falling apart in your life. Certainly, you could feel like you're in darkness in a time like that. But this text will suggests to us that you could also be in darkness when you just got a new job, when you just got a promotion, when you just finished school well, and when everything in your relationships are doing, for the most part, pretty good. And yet, your experience is not being in the light, but as the text says, you feel as if you're walking in darkness. Matthew Henry, when he speaks of this text, defines the darkness as the evidences of heaven are clouded. The joy of the Lord is interrupted, and the testimony of the Spirit has been suspended. At that time, it would seem religion is just a big chore. There is no delight. There seems to be no light. And yet the message of the text says, for the person walking in darkness and they have no light, is to trust in the name of the Lord and to stay, to rely on upon your God. So this morning, for just a few moments, we want to look at a couple of things that this text would tell us to do in a time of darkness, in a time of darkness. Number one, stay in the fear of the Lord. If we're to stay upon God and rely upon Him, then keep relying upon the fear of the Lord. 
Now, the present tense word says he's speaking to those that are fearing God. So if you're to trust in the name of the Lord and you're to stay upon your God, you're to stay in the fear of the Lord. Now, what would that mean? Well, it would mean verse 11. Behold all ye that kindle a fire, that compass yourself about with sparks, with firebrands, with torches. Walk in the light of your fire. And in the sparks that you have kindled, this shall you have of my hand, saith the Lord. You shall lie down in sorrow. And there's a bit of irony here. The person who lights their own fire finds one day they're sleeping in the darkness. They're lying down in the darkness. Three things about the fear of the Lord here. One, remember the warning of God. Now, you may say that's the last thing a person ever needs to hear when they're discouraged and dispirited and and downcast. Well, apparently God thinks it's one of the first things they need to hear. Because right after saying, stay in the fear of God, rely upon your God, He issues a warning. Now, maybe it's not the very first thing that needs to be said, but certainly the fear of the Lord is a paramount issue in times of darkness The warning is you shall lie down in sorrow, in grief, in pain. Now, that doesn't mean the same night you light your own fire. It doesn't mean the next week. It doesn't mean the next year or the next decade. Job uses the word to say you'll lie down in the dust. For here, God is talking about the grave. To light your own fire, to light your own torch, is to eventually one day to lie down in the grave of perpetual pain and sorrow. You may object and say, that's harsh. How does that help someone? Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So if we're to have any kind of wisdom when it seems that the light of the Lord is shut off, that the light of His countenance has been eclipsed, like a total eclipse of the sun, it seems no light, no beam of God's blessing seems to be coming through as far as your experience is concerned, God would speak in this darkness and say, to fear Him is to remember the warnings that I have given you. Warnings in the Bible are good things for the people of God. Someone may object and say, but I don't think the warnings are really for the people of God. Well, notice verse 10 again. Who is among you that fears the Lord? So Isaiah is speaking to two groups. One group is the group that doesn't fear God. That's the group you find in verses 1 and 2. When God poses the question to those that were challenging Him and saying, You have abandoned us. Here is a prophecy concerning the future exile to Babylon. So when they get there, they're going to say, You've abandoned us. You've forsaken us. And God says, Where is the bill of your mother's divorcement that I put her away. Show me the papers. No, God had not abandoned Israel like a father may abandon the mother and leave his children behind. Secondly, to whom are the creditors that I've sold you to? Sometimes, tragically, poor parents from pressure of creditors would have to sell their children into slavery for a season to pay off the debt because they were being pressured. The Lord says, to which of the creditors have I sold you? You sold yourselves by your own transgressions and your iniquities. Now that's one group that he's speaking to. Who among you 
But then the other group are those that fear the Lord. Now, Isaiah now doesn't say, look, for you that fear the Lord, you get on this side of the room, I'm not talking to you anymore. Now, you that don't fear the Lord, here's the warning for you. Notice verse 11. Behold all of you, whosoever among you, both groups, all of you, any among you that don't fear the Lord or fear the Lord, light your own fire, start your own torch, this is what you'll have of my hand. You'll lie down in darkness forever. That's sobering. But clearly Isaiah means for this warning to have its impact on the people of God. So the why they're in safety in God's backyard and they see people on other yards in the neighborhood lighting the torch, starting the fire of self-reliance, they remember the warning and the fear of the Lord. And while the clouds are hovering on their backyard alone, and it seems like the rain is pouring on their lot only, and all the other yards seem to be clear and free from the darkness, the Lord says, ultimately, those fires are going to be put out forever. Stay in God's backyard. Stay in the fear of the Lord. Remember the Lord's warning. Secondly, remember to fear God. Remember the Lord's hand. Notice what he says. This shall ye have of mine hand. Ye shall lie down in sorrow. Now the hand of God that will bring the sorrow on those that don't fear Him is the same hand that brought the darkness that you're in. For a season, for God's holy purposes, He has withdrawn the light of His countenance. And so his, it's His hand that has you in the darkness. And while you're there, He says, stay in the fear of the Lord. Don't leave the fear of God. Stay with the voice of His servant. Don't stop listening to the voice of His servant. Keep trusting the name of God and rely upon Me. Even though for a season, for God's own holy purposes, His hand has placed you in the darkness. David in Psalm 31 was experiencing some darkness of his own. He said, My acquaintances flee from me when they see me. I am forgotten as a dead man out of mind. I'm like a broken vessel. It was a period of time when Saul was after David. And Saul had had... Ahimelech killed the priest because he had given David the sword of uh, Goliath and given him some bread. And Doeg, that wicked man, told Saul. And Saul slew all the priests. Now if that happened and you see David walking down the road, what are you going to do? You're going to start running. And that's what was happening. He said, fear was on every side. They slander. They devise. They take counsel to take away my life. Saul's after him. Other people are after him. He feels like a dead man. Nobody remembers. And when his own familiar neighbors see him, they flee from his presence. Now that's a kind of darkness in itself, is it? But David says in Psalm 31, 14, But I said, O Lord, I trusted in thee, O Lord, and I said, You are my God. My times are in your hand. It's very important to remember in your time of darkness. If you have a season of darkness which we all at some times can walk through. You must remember, the time of your darkness is in the hand of God. Stay there. Stay with God in 
the darkness. The word times means your occurrences, your occasions, your events, your circumstances. It's your course of life. David finds strength in the Lord while he's in a kind of darkness where it seems everything is against him. And yet he acknowledges the hand of God is in his time. The hand of God has David's time, his darkness, his fear, his being forgotten, his being fled from. All is in the hand of the living God. Beloved, we must remember that. We must apply the sovereignty of God at such a time to know the very darkness that you're in, the very darkness that some will run out of and light their own fire of self-reliance is the darkness that God has placed you in. So trust Him. Stay in the fear of the Lord, which is depart from evil, the proverb says, and to move in toward God. Stay with him in the darkness. Paul had his own time of darkness. In a trial he had in 2 Corinthians 1.8 that he wanted the church of Corinth to remember. He said, I don't want you to be ignorant of the trouble that came to me in Asia. He said, it was above measure, past our strength. We had the sentence of death in ourselves so that we would learn not to be self-reliant or trust in ourselves, but in the living God that raises the dead. So apparently there was something still in Paul that might be tempted to light his own fire. To light his own torch and rely upon himself rather than the living God. So what God does, he sends to Paul, uh, to Paul a kind of darkness, a, a trial that he doesn't tell us specifically what happened. And Paul knows from God the very interpretation of that dark time in his life was that he would not be self-reliant. Now, Paul can be self-reliant. Beloved, that means you and I can be self-reliant too. We love the gospel of self-reliance. It feeds our sense of self-worth and our sense of self-esteem. We love to be the Batman, the hero. And if not, then Robin the Boy Wonder will do just fine because he's the celebrated sidekick. In every one of you, that exists. You cannot deny it from Scripture. And so for God's own holy purposes, ironically, the very thing He's doing often is to rid us more of our self-reliance. Then why would we turn in self-reliance away from God in the darkness and begin to light our own fire? Now rest assured, this is not trying to get warm by a fire. It's not lighting a torch so you can see. It's walking in your own light. It's charting your own course. It's saying from here forward, I will do my life on my own terms. Why? Because the darkness is so dark, so heavy, that the temptation is to leave the God who's brought about the darkness. So remember the warning of God. That, that's healthy for us. Remember the hand of God. The very time of your darkness is in His hand. Whatever the season, however long, according to God's holy purpose, and remember to hope in God. You may say, what does that have to do with fear? Everything. According to Psalms in the book of Proverbs. Psalm 147, the psalmist would say, He that is God delighteth not in the strength of the horse. He has no pleasure in the legs of a man. 
Now, in ancient battle, those are two things you wanted. A good, fast horse and a strong man who's agile and able with the strength of his legs to to move about on the battlefield. No tanks, no guns, just a sword and agility with a horse. That was a great advantage. But that's no advantage to God. Because the next verse says, The Lord taketh pleasure in those that fear Him and those that hope in His mercy. The fear and the hope are in the same person. Now that won't exist in the same house, in the same bedroom, right? You ever known a child that had a nightmare? They awake from the nightmare. And the first impulse is to remove themselves from the place of fear. They begin to run in hope. Where? Well, to their parents' bedroom. Their expectation, their hope is that if I make it to my parents' bedroom, all is safe, all is well, all is good. So in one room you have fear, in the other room you have hope. They do not exist together, except in this text. God takes pleasure, God delights in the person that fears Him, that hopes in His mercy. So to fear God in our text while you're in the darkness is to hope in the mercy of God. Oh, how we need hope, especially in a time of darkness, because that's what we think we've lost. All hope is gone. We can't see the light of day. We can't see past the end of our noses. Sometimes, when the darkness encroaches, it seems as if all hope is lost. But to fear God is to rest in what God says and to hope in His mercy, because those two exist in the same room. For example, suppose you awaken in your bedroom to the judgment, the unflinching righteousness, and the wrath of God. You have for the first time a consciousness of God's wrath. And your first impulse is to run for hope. Now according to the text, as soon as you leave your bedroom, you go back to it. Because your hope is in the same God of wrath. So here, mercy and hope... And fear exists in the same bedroom. How can that coexist? How can you stay in the room that you fear God's wrath, but yet there's hope in the same room? We think about the wrath of God. We think about fearing God in a healthy, reverent way. We think about His righteousness and and who He is. There is no greater thing to fear that you could ever imagine. If, if the, the human imagination could think of a, a terror, a fear, a torment, a torture that could last from birth to about 80 years old. And it's the worst the imagined man, uh, the imagination of the mind could ever comprehend. That falls infinitely short of the fear of the wrath of God. It, it doesn't even get close. You can't imagine the wrath of God. So how do we hope in the God of wrath? Because God's mercy has sent His Son to absorb it. And so when we see things that we fear about God, that we have a reverence about God, we're fearing it in the sense that we adore the God that we now hope in because He settled His own wrath. He satisfied it. His justice has been satisfied. His righteousness 
has been meted out in the person of Christ so we can stay in the same room when we see things that are about God's wrath in Scripture because we're hoping in the person who's absorbed the very wrath of God. So hoping in God is to fear God. It's not to tremble in torment, it's to tremble with a delight because mercy has satisfied the very justice of God and we find it in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Proverbs would tell us that fear and hope reside together in the same heart and the same mind of the Christian. In Proverbs 23, Solomon, I think, there writes, Let not your heart envy sinners, but be thou in the fear of the Lord all the day long. Why? For surely there is an end, and your expectation will not be cut off. So somehow the fear of the Lord is going to help us not to envy sinners in our heart. Those are the guys next door with the torches. And the campfire, and they're just enjoying, and, and you're the guy in the backyard with the rain coming down, the clouds hovering over, you're in darkness. Somehow, being in the fear of the Lord all day is going to help your heart not to envy sinners. How? Because surely there's an end, and your expectation will not be cut down, it will not be cut off. The word in means a latter time, an after part, a hindermost part, a furthest reach. Somewhere in the latter time of your life, there will be an end and your expectation will not be cut off. But at some point, the sinner that you envy, that we shouldn't envy, what will be their end? Proverbs 10.28, the expectation of the wicked shall perish. And that means forever. All that they hope for, all that they look for will be gone forever. Proverbs 11, verse 7. The hope of the wicked dies in the grave. His expectation, his hope perishes. So when the wicked go to the grave, all hope, all expectation is eternally gone. It's cut off. It's over. It's ended. In Proverbs 11, 23 or 27. The expectation of the wicked is wrath. Now that doesn't mean that they're hoping in that. It just means that is what the future holds. Now that's the sinner you're envying. Why would you envy a sinner whose hope, expectation, dies in the grave forever? In other words, they'll lie down in sorrow by the hand of God. But what is the expectation of the person that fears God? What is their hope? And that's what we're talking about. When we fear God in the darkness, we have to have hope for the future. We have to remember the expectation that God says will not be cut off. And what is it? Well, why do you envy sinners? And there's your answer. Why do you want what they have? Why do you resent it when you don't have what they have in their backyard with the sun shining? It's as Asaph says. He was envious of the prosperity of the wicked. Now your expectation 
will not be cut off. That is, what you're after that you think they have will not be cut off in the Lord. Because the expectation of the righteous is only gladness. The hope of the righteous is eternal life and everlasting bliss. So the only way you can be anchored in your darkness and steadfast is the fear of the Lord, that you remember to hope in the Lord, and God says to you, your end, your expectation forever will never be cut down or cut off. It will only rise up into eternity with everlasting happiness in the Lord. Don't envy sinners who will be cut off for eternity. When the hope of eternal life, God says to you, I will fulfill your every expectation. I'm going to deliver on your future expectation what you really want spiritually. I'm going to deliver forever. So stay in the fear of the Lord. Stay there. And eventually, the darkness will lift. It will lift. I don't know how long. I don't know if it's a short season. I don't know if it's a long season. I don't know if it's a struggle you'll have to have all your life. The promise of God for those that fear Him, for those that hope in His mercy, is that your expectation for future joy will never, ever be cut off. You must hang on to that. Because of the present, joy is interrupted. Religion is a chore. There seems to be no light. And for your present experience, there is no kind of blessed assurance. So you stay in the fear of the Lord and you cling to hope in God. As David said, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope thou in God. For I shall yet, future expectation, praise Him for the help of His presence. Which means what? He's in darkness. But he has hope. David issues a challenge to his own soul. A challenge we all need to speak. Martin Lloyd-Jones speaks of this text in this way. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why are you cast down? What business do you have to be disquieted? That's what David is doing. What on earth are you cast down about? Now, there were many reasons his own soul could have responded to David and said, let me tell you why. He was in exile. Psalm 43, or 42, verse 2. My Food has been my tears day and night. He was in the land of the Hermonites from the hill Mizar. He remembers God. He's in exile to the north. The unbelievers are taunting him while they continue to say, Where is thy God? Psalm 42, verse 2. He is overwhelmed with trials. Your waves and your billows have gone over me. David is like the man on the beach The older man, maybe my age, when the waves keep coming in, they hit him. And as soon as he staggers to get up, they hit him again. Now, everybody on the beach is laughing. But he cannot get his balance. He just keeps getting pushed down, down. And what does he say? Your waves are overwhelming me. He remembers the blessing of former days. I remember the days 
We kept the holy days in sanctuary. It was a time of joy, but He wasn't there. And it seemed as if God was slow to respond. Lord, why have you forgotten me? Beloved, that's darkness. Now, David is not in the darkness of sin. David does not love darkness, but he's in darkness. And what does he say? Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you disquieted? And then he issues a command to himself. You hope in God. We really need to think that way. We really need to talk to ourselves in that manner. We really need to follow the great example of David. As if to say, I know what you said, but you have no excuse. David's not a victim here. Well, I'm in darkness and that's just the way it is. No, it's not the way it is, David says. He will fight the darkness he's in with the fear of the Lord and with hoping in God. And so what does he say? The Lord will command His loving kindness in the daytime. And His song shall be mine in the night. My prayer to the God of my life. God will command His loving kindness. It's coming. The darkness is going to lift one day. The word command expresses two things. First, the freedom of God's loving kindness. His steadfast love. His covenant faithfulness to you. It's free because you didn't do anything to get it. And guess what? You can't do anything to make it go away. Isn't that good? Now, if you did something to get it, well, you can do something to get rid of it. If salvation is kept by you keeping it or you could lose it, then how did you get it in the first place? No, it's a, it's a command of God. He will command His loving kindness because God is free in the dispensing of His grace and He's lavished it abundantly upon David and upon you. Therefore, talk to yourself. He will command His loving kindness. And then the second observation is that of sovereignty. If God commands it, beloved, nobody can stop it. Nobody can keep it from coming. Now imagine if your darkness could keep God's loving kindness from penetrating you. If you get yourself into such a situation, such a darkness, that you think there's nothing that can penetrate my darkness, then you're hopeless. But David said, hope in God. I will yet praise Him for the help of His countenance. He will command. He will command His loving kindness. Now, does that mean David automatically felt better and the darkness just fled? No. He set the darkness in a right relationship to God. The darkness cannot prevail against God because He will command His loving kindness. And having that right relationship, what happens? He's anchored. He's steadfast. He's not moving because his fear and his hope is in the Lord. And it can work the same way with us, beloved. Who is the man that fears the Lord, that's walking in darkness? Let him continue to fear the Lord and stay in the fear of God. Remember his warning, that's good for you. Remember his hand, that's stability. And remember to put your hope in God. Now, how would you do that if there's darkness? You say, I can't even see God. Well, next, obey the voice of His servant. Who is He among you that feareth the Lord and obeyeth the voice of His servant? 
that walks in darkness and has no light, let him trust in the name of the Lord and let him stay upon his God. Stay with the voice of his servant. The word obey there means to listen or to hear it. Now, what servant are we talking about? Well, on one level, beginning in verse 4, Isaiah is speaking of himself, but we know on another level, this is the third servant song of four in Isaiah speaking of the servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's God's servant that we need to listen to. That's the one for whom God said to Peter, this is my beloved son, you hear his voice. It is crucial in the darkness that you stay with the voice of His servant because that's the one thing that we lose sight of. Now listen to verse 4. The Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned. That would be Isaiah, but this is a messianic prophecy applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. Who is that? That's your darkness. Jesus knows how to speak to you a word in the season of your fatigue and your darkness and your dispirited soul. He may speak that word through you to someone in the darkness. So you may say, well, I I just know what you're talking about. I'm not in the darkness. Well, you may be tomorrow. And if not, you may know someone in the darkness And so Jesus uses you to speak a word to the weary in a season of laboring and heavy laden. And when Jesus speaks in that context, His word is always, come to me. Don't leave me because of the darkness. Stay with me in the darkness. Hear my voice. And how do we hear that voice? We hear the voice of the Lord through the preached word and reading his word. Isn't that the hardest two things to do when you're in the darkness? Oddly enough, the first thing that goes when we come into darkness is hearing the voice of Jesus through the preached word, through the written word, and through the discipleship word. It goes because we become hopeless. We've lost sight of God. We've lost sight of His countenance. He has, in fact, withdrawn Himself for a season for His own holy purposes. And oddly enough, the very thing that we need that God says stay with is the thing we forsake. We stop hearing the voice of the Lord. In fact, people stop going to church. They say, well, it's a labor. It's a chore. I don't feel like it. But how desperately you need it. See, we're not talking about acting on your emotions. Now, thanks be to God. I can think of very few times in over 20 years of ministry that I got in the pulpit and thought, I'd rather be anywhere in the world. I wanted to be here. There have been a few times. See, it's not, if you said, Brother Mike, we, we just want you to preach whenever you feel like it. You know, you're having a bad month, just... We'll come, and if you're not here, we'll know. You just decided, I'm not going today. You don't expect that of me. Frankly, beloved, I don't expect that of you. I expect people to be here to preach to. Of course, you can get another preacher, I know, and that'd be fine, and he would expect you to be here to preach to, right? It's not based on the way you feel. 
God is very concerned about our emotions. These, these are not optional things with God. But the person in this text is in darkness. And so this person would say, I just don't feel like it today. Jesus, the servant of the Lord, is ready to speak a word to you through preaching. He's ready to speak a word to you through brothers and sisters in Christ. He's ready to speak a word to you in your weariness, in your darkness, through the word of God. Don't forsake it. Drag yourself to it if it takes it. Confide in somebody. Say, I, I just feel like I'm in darkness. Can you come get me? Because if you don't, I'm not going back to church. That's fine. We'll come get you. Don't forsake the voice of the Lord. So let's talk briefly about the benefit and what that would mean. What is the benefit of hearing the voice of Jesus in the darkness through preaching and through reading? One, His voice is what gives you hope. The very hope we talked about, right? Romans 15 verse 4. Whatsoever was written aforetime, that's our text in the whole Old Testament, was written for our learning and admonition that we through patience and comfort of the Scripture might have hope. Now the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing something. The Scripture that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. It gives you hope. And you're forsaking your own hope when you shut off the voice of your Savior, the servant of the Lord. It awakens your faith. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Romans 10, Galatians 3, 2. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law, by the hearing of faith. By the hearing of faith or the hearing of the voice of Jesus in the Word. It was awakened. It sustained. Paul had received grace and apostleship for the obedience to the faith among all nations for his namesake. Obedience is listening under. So faith produces a, an obedience which is a listening under the voice of the Lord. Faith is sustained. Faith is awakened. Faith is strengthened. And in your darkness... You shut off. You shut off the very thing that will awaken you again and again. It's been shut off. What else? The voice of the Lord keeps us following Jesus. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give unto them eternal life. They hear my voice. They know me. And they follow the voice of the Good Shepherd. How do you hear that? How do you keep going? It's the voice of your Savior in the Word. He speaks to you. He speaks to me. Say, well, I haven't heard Him speak recently. He speaks. Stay with it. The voice of the Lord sustains spiritual life. Man shall not live by bread alone. Now, what happens, tell me, if you cut off bread? You say, well, I would eat steak. That's not what it's talking about. It means food. I'm just going to go the next six months without eating food. Well, just go ahead and buy the burial plot. Your physical life is sustained by bread. Man doesn't live by bread only, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of your God. That's Jesus. What sustains the vitality of your spiritual life in the darkness? Say, well, I can't see Him. I'm not experiencing Him. The voice of God. You must have the Word. 
the voice of the Lord warns us we've already sinned. Psalm, uh, seen. Psalm one, uh, 19, rather. Psalm 19. More to be desired are they than gold, gave them much fine gold. Sweeter than the honey and the honeycomb. So I don't feel it that way. It's not gold to me. It's not honey to me. Moreover, by, thy, by them thy servant is warned. See? It may not be like honey today. In fact, I would say in the darkness, it's just not my experience. But it warns us. It doesn't have to be sweet to receive a warning, does it? You, you can receive a warning. Don't go play in the street, child. You go live out there, you could die. See, Nothing has to be sweet to receive that. We're warned by the voice of Jesus Christ. And the voice of the Lord brings the spiritual filling. It brings the Spirit. When He comes, He's going to come by the voice of the Lord. That's what He does. We learned in Ephesians 5.18, Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking and singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. The parallel of Colossians 3.16 says what? Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing. To be filled with the Spirit is to be filled with the Word of Christ. Now you just cut yourself off from the Word of Christ. You just cut yourself off from the Spirit of God. How would that work? The voice of the Lord overcomes the devil. 1 John 2.14 I have spoken to you fathers because you've known Him from the beginning. I have spoken to you young men, which is just a paraphrase for young people. Because the Word of God is in you and you've overcome the wicked one. Love not the world. The Word of God is the power to overcome the accusations and the methods of the wicked one. Now here's the question. You're in darkness. You shut off the voice of the Lord. You don't want to hear preaching. You don't want to read the Word. I get it. It's a, it's a chore. It's a dread. It's just not what it once was. Let me tell you what just happened. You just cut off hope. You just cut off your faith. You just cut off spiritual life. Because that's what sustains it. You just stop following the Lord. You have no warnings. The Spirit has been pushed aside. And the devil, who was once overcome by the Word of God, comes in like a flood. In your darkness... Now we're already susceptible in the darkness and then we shut off the voice of the Lord and what happens? Hope and faith, the Spirit, begins to wane. Oh, beloved, stay with the voice of your Lord. He knows the darkness you're in. But also stay with the voice of the Gospel. Look at verse 5. The Lord... I'm in Isaiah 50. The Lord God hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. Verse 7, Isaiah 50. For the Lord God will help me, therefore shall I be, uh, not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. He is near that justifieth me. Now this is about the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't hide his face from shame and spitting on the cross. 
He was steadfastly set to go to Jerusalem, knowing what would befall him there. His face was like a flint. That means resolved, determined. Nothing would stop him. And there, the one that was near would justify Christ. And that's not the same kind of justification that you and I experience. Jesus wasn't a sinner that was justified by God or declared to be right. He was a righteous Savior that was declared to be right upon His resurrection because He was accused as a blasphemer, an evil man, an imposter. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ, He was justified, He was vindicated to be exactly who He said He was. The Spirit justified Christ. He was raised from the dead. Although he didn't hide his face from shame and spitting, the Lord hid his face from your Savior. He had a face-to-face relationship with his Father forever. And the dread of Calvary, of all that he had to endure, is that that face-to-face, eternal, happy relationship would be severed spiritually. And Jesus himself would walk into the thick darkness on your behalf. So that you could stay with Him in your darkness that has no comparison. So we need to take what Jesus has done in justifying us. And hear His voice in the gospel. I turn back to Micah 7, which was our public scripture reading. We close on this portion. How can we wrestle with the darkness, with the doctrine of the gospel of justification by faith alone? Through grace alone. Listen to Micah in his transition. He says, therefore, in verse 7, I will look unto the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. I'm in verse 8 of Micah 7. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Until he plead my cause and execute judgment for me, he will bring me forth to the light, and I shall behold his righteousness. Now Micah here is speaking in the first person, but he's speaking on behalf of Israel. Now he includes himself in it, but the injustices of Israel have come to bear. They're going into Assyrian captivity. The southern two uh, tribes would go into Babylonian captivity. So Micah speaking in the first person will represent Israel. And he says, I sit in darkness. There's been a fall. There's darkness. The difference in this darkness is there has been sin. Now Isaiah 50.10 doesn't tell us there's any sin. There's just a, a darkness. But here, there's the darkness. God is indignant. He is displeased with Micah, with the nation of Israel because of sin. And Micah owns it. And Michael says, I've sinned against him. So it won't do to belittle it. It won't do to kind of say it's not a big deal. He's bearing indignation. God is displeased with his prophet and with the nation of Israel. He gets displeased with us, doesn't he? So there's real guilt. There's real sin. And there's real darkness. And the darkness is the consequence of sin. So that's a little different from Isaiah. But we can wrestle the same way. What is Micah going to do? First, he's going to speak to his enemies. Verse 8, rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. And that's who you need to speak to. Who are the enemies? First, there were enemies among Israel for Micah. 
and there were enemies among the neighboring nations, like the Philistines who would look on and say what we find in verse 10. Where is the Lord your God? That's what the enemy is going to say. Where is your God? Now Micah, Mr. Prophet, I'll prophesy to you. I'll tell you where your God is. He's going to fall on you with judgment. You said He's a holy God. You said He's unflinching in justice. You said He's righteous and you have sinned. You admit it. Yes, I've sinned. You're about to get what's coming to you. Your God's going to fall on you and He's going to execute judgment against you. Micah says, don't rejoice against me, O mine enemy. Second enemy, the enemy of the devil. He's the accuser of the brethren. He loves to accuse you. And in your darkness, even if it's not a current sin, He's going to flood you with all your sins. Some of you here, some of you mothers today, probably struggle with that already. Your, your children lavished you with praise and blessing, and all you could think about was your failure. That's all you could think about. And dads, we're that way too, right? It just doesn't even feel right for you to say these things to me when all I can think about is all of my failures. And we have them, don't we? So the devil comes in and he accuses you. Micah says, Rejoice not against me, O mine enemies. And the third accuser is probably the worst. He's the enemy of self. You start talking to yourself. You say, You're an utter failure as a prophet, Micah. Why are you even a prophet? You go around telling people to serve God. You represent God about holy living and look at you. You've sinned. Why don't you just give it up now? And you start to listen to that. You start to play the victim and say, life's not even worth living. Ought to just end it all right now. You ever had a moment like that? You look at all the failures in your life. You're sitting in darkness. And here you can't say, well, I don't know why yet. Michael knows why. I've sinned against the Lord. He's displeased. And yet he has the audacity to say to his enemies, be lost. Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. Why? I shall arise. The Lord will be a light unto me. Verse 9. He will plead my cause. He will execute judgment for me, not against me. This is crucial in our darkness. Whether there's sin we remember or whether we can't put our finger on why we're in the darkness. The accusers come and they come with vengeance. What are you going to say? Micah is going to plead on the basis of legal justification, not moral justification. This is so important. If we miss this, the darkness just hovers. This is courtroom language. The word phrase, plead my cause, means a case at law. Execute judgment for me means God is going to give a sentence. He's going to sentence me. How how does that make anybody feel good? (laughs) I've sinned, you're holy, I'm in your courtroom, you are unflinching with the law, nobody gets away, and yet I'm just going to let you decide the case. Now if Micah tries to reason on moral justification, this is what he says. He's going to represent himself in a court of law. I think that's still okay in American courts. You don't have to have a lawyer. You can represent yourself. Probably wouldn't recommend that, but you could. So Micah would get up, representing Micah, and he'd say, Lord, 
Or, Your Honor, I don't know if you know this, but this guy's a prophet. And prophets, they do prophecy. And Your Honor, in case you don't know, as a prophet, the man reads the Bible. And he prays all the time. He's been married for years. Got a happy marriage. He homeschools his children. Did you know that? Furthermore, honor, he's just not like other men are. He's never, he's a teetotaler. He's never had a drink in his life. He's never smoked anything. Anything. At that moment, the judge would slam his gavel and say, you get out of my courtroom right now. And he would throw the book at Micah. Oh, beloved, you will never come out of the darkness if you're going to reason with God on the basis of your morality. And yet men try to do that. I haven't done things like other people. I'm not that bad. Oh, yes, you are. You're worse than you could ever imagine. Micah is going to plead on the basis of legal justification that will lead to moral transformation. How does he do that? This is how he can say, Be gone from me, enemies. I mean, the devil's accurate when he accuses you. He's not making this stuff up. He did sin. How does God plead a case for you, not against you? Well, Micah first says, Lord, I don't represent myself. It, I'm... I'm guilty. I'm bearing your indignation, your displeasure, because I'm guilty. I'm guilty as charged. I want you to represent me. Just That's risky, Micah. This is the judge of all the earth. He has a law. He will regard his law. Do you know what this means for you? I'm guilty. Is cast it all on you. How does that help? Well, because of verse 18. Who is a God like unto thee? Rhetorical answer. There is none. That pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant, uh, uh, remnant of his heritage. He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. Now, Micah is carrying indignation, but the word pardon is the same word carry. The only way Micah can carry the displeasure of the Lord is because Jesus carried Micah's sin. So the indignation he bears is not the indignation of a judge. It's the displeasure of a father. And you know what the father says in the courtroom? He says, Bailiff, You take my robe and put it on Micah. And you put my ring on his finger. And you kill the fatted calf. Because my son was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. And then there's a celebration in heaven, beloved. It is crucial that we don't miss the gospel in our darkness. Because the the enemy comes in like a flood. And God lifts up a standard against it. It's the standard of Jesus' righteousness. Don't tell him what you will do. Don't tell him. That you're good. Point to Jesus. Your advocate. And you will successfully. 
be stable in the darkness. Because moral justification will never be. God declares you right on the basis of Jesus and what He's done. Imputed to you. And Jesus went into the thick darkness. He bore a million Sodom and Gomorrahs for you. That's hell. And He was separated from a face-to-face relationship with God. So that in your times, when God's countenance is not shining, He has not forsaken you. His conduct may have changed towards you, and He's withdrawn Himself for a season for His holy purposes. But He remains steadfast, and He is a covenant-keeping, faithful God. So wrestle with your enemies, whether they're beside you, whether they're the devil and his demonic forces, whether it's yourself, and say, the Lord will plead my case. He will give me the sentence of righteousness. Not because I'm moral, Because Jesus paid it all. And through that faith and repentance. Now we have the basis for moral transformation. Faith and repentance. If Micah never acknowledges sin. He has no basis for moral transformation. Somebody says, Michael, you're prophesying wrong. And he really is. He says, no I'm not. No I'm not. He never changes. Until he says, yes I am. Yes I've sinned. Yes I've gotten it wrong. Yes, I'm forgiven. And now, moral transformation takes place only by the hope of the gospel. Legally, you've been declared right by God. As an ungodly person, He declares you right. And now, the basis of holiness is by trusting in the name of the Lord in our text. If you're walking in darkness, you have no light. Trust in that name. Listen to that voice. Fear that God. And stay with God in the darkness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your...